0: This episode of the SaaS Revolution show is sponsored by Oyster. Oyster is the global HR platform that makes it easy to employ people remotely in other countries. It's purpose-built for globally distributed organizations that want to tap the global talent pool and give all their employees around the world a great employment experience. Oyster lets you hire, pay, and give great local benefits in over 75 countries. To find out more, visit OysterHR.com.
1: One of the biggest mistakes is not understanding or not taking the time to do something I call the product market fit pause. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to continually just overnight flip the switch and everyone work on one thing, but it is important that you stop and really pause and look at what exactly in the core of what you've been selling is your product market fit. And that's typically what you, are, you have retention in, right? So it takes a little bit of time to understand that, how long it takes to implement or get someone on board, or if they're, if, if you have strong retention.
0: I have something cool to announce to you, the listeners. On December the 15th, we have a brand new SaaS Doc event, Blueprint Series for CEOs. It's all about giving SaaS CEOs the blueprint to go from good startup to great scale up. It's a one day live event, a CEO peer group all year round and gives you access to investor matchmaking days. Over the last five years, we have refined the blueprint based on insights from the world's greatest SaaS founders and specialists to help you move up from startup to scale up successfully. We're bringing this together for you on December the 15th online with the events and program. You will learn how to avoid mistakes that can kill your business, how to hire and manage the best exec teams, how to build a partner ecosystem that works, how to do deals without the founder, how to extend runway and secure investment, amongst other things. We have some amazing speakers that have done it, seen it, and will share the, their blueprints to success. These include Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, Goddard Abel, CEO of G2, David Cancel, CEO of Drift, and Shelley Perry, General Partner of ScaleLogix, and more. If you're interested to join and want to learn more about taking your startup from good to great, go to sas.com forward slash blueprint, use code SASREVOLUTION20 for a 20% discount on your tickets if you're going to join us. Welcome to the SAS Revolution show. I'm your host, Alex Humer, CEO of SASDoc. Uh, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Shelly Perry, Managing Director at ScaleLogic Ventures. Welcome, Shelly.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here, Alex.
0: Great to have you on. I know we're obviously virtual. We're, we're, we're on a Zoom call. Um, where are you uh, calling from?
1: I'm calling from my home studio in San Francisco. I developed a home studio during quarantine, so here I am.
0: Very smart. We were just ch- uh, chatting just before uh, we, we pressed record that uh, that you've got uh, dual uh, redundancy or, or dual internet lines which I, I I failed to do so far but uh, a necessity today I think uh, a necessity so uh, good good on you. Uh, so Shelley we've only uh, sort of you know become acquainted uh, you, you know sort of recently uh, because you're speaking at uh, uh, the Blueprint Series for CEOs on December the 15th um, uh, so I've obviously done my research on on you but, uh, and I'm hoping some of our audience knows you, and we, we we do we have some common acquaintances as well. But why don't you tell the audience if they've not heard of Shelley Perry before? Who are you uh, as a person? Um, you know, what do you do? Uh, what is ScaleLogix Ventures?
1: So ScaleLogic Ventures is a incubation investment firm that focuses on things that help a CEO during the scale up stage of growth. Over the last four years, I had the opportunity to work with Insight Partners, fantastic firm. And one of the things that I learned is that there's so much help that a CEO, especially scaling from one to 10 million needs. And as investment firms get larger, it's harder for them to focus on the one to 10 million, especially if it's not a majority check. And Just the littlest of things, the littlest of help will, the right size value help will help a company scale from one to 10. And the problem is is that there's not a lot of vendors or or programs out there or even advisors that specialize in that that stage of growth because it's a unique stage of growth and the fact that you've got to understand the choices that people have made during startup to help them really during scale up that first stage of scale up. So one of the things that I do is help companies that want to specialize in the scale up stage of growth to provide right size resources to CEOs during that phase. And We train them on the scale up stage of growth. We help them develop programs and value-based solutions that work for that one to 10 million kind of growth range. And we help them create new businesses and at the same time create new value to the CEOs and the C-suites of the companies during that stage.
0: You've been an operator, not just an investor as well. uh, I think when I'm looking at LinkedIn, I've seen you as CEO of uh, some European SaaS companies and a POO. Can you tell us a little bit uh, more about that?
1: Yeah, so I've spent uh, 25 years in software. I started as a financial person and realized very quickly that I wanted, I was an accountant actually, and had much more fun automating the financials than I did uh, doing the accounting part. However, one of the key things that I've always liked to have in my background is I am financially oriented. So I went into technology because I wanted to learn how to automate more of the things that I didn't want to do routinely on a monthly basis. And so I uh, went back to school and got my master's in computer science, and I've just been hooked on software, specifically the SaaS model for the last 25 years. And I have worked as a developer at VP of engineering up through CTO, CPO, an operating partner, and a CEO most recently until I decided to create an uh, incubation firm for helping CEOs that are in this stage of growth. And one of the things that I really like about Europe and experiencing working in Europe right now is SaaS is starting to explode in Europe. And it's so much fun. I remember when SaaS started to explode in the US and there's just a, such an opportunity for careers and for companies. And I see Europe going through that same evolution right now, and I'm just excited to be a part of it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And uh, so, I mean, as you said, like we when I first started SAS Doc, uh and the, and the first conference in 2016, which we had, uh, again, this was, I think, like Europe started to explode from a, a SaaS uh, sense at, um, at that time. And we had, uh, you know, Nikos Moritaikis, um, you know, CEO of Workable um uh you know uh, i think we had uh, Des trainer from intercom for instance when they were like you know kind of much smaller companies and even uh, i i know that you you advise uh, as you mentioned like uh, chargebee not european uh, <laughs> yes, they're not. Uh, although, yeah although they are in europe now but, yeah, uh, okay. but again like chris uh, i think you know from chargebee uh, when when he attended saas in 2016 you know they were I, Series A or something like that, right? And now they're F. Uh, They are F.
1: Yes, I've been working with Chargebee since uh, late 2017. And it's just been so much fun to work with the team and see them explode. But they do have an office now in Amsterdam. And I like to think I had a help in that because I was a CEO for a company in Amsterdam as they were deciding which headquarters. And I, said, uh, I think Amsterdam is great. Uh, so I like to think I have a little bit of a, a impact on that. It,
0: uh, it, it all makes sense now. It, it, it all makes sense <laughs> now, uh, good, good, good stuff. And uh, and it's great. I mean, it's like you, you know, we the going back to that 2016 story. All the speakers that we have You know, what I wanted. I, I wanted. Uh, speakers have this quality, uh, which I'd sort of defined as SaaS chops, right? You've got to have your SaaS chops there. And I think from what you've explained, 25 years and your your various roles, uh, you know, as an operator and then through, you know, an investor, um, you know, and now obviously, you know, ScaleLogix, uh, you've definitely got those. So that's why, um, you know, we have you speaking at at, at Blueprint, uh, which is on the 15th of December. um, And effectively for those uh, maybe that don't know what Blueprint is, uh, you know, over the last uh, sort of five years at, at stock, uh, you know, we've seen by you know being exposed to you know some uh, amazing talks that you know throughout all of our conferences and founders, uh, you know, people like Godard and, Abel and David Cancel, for instance, just to to, to kind of call out uh, that there is a blueprint, you know, to get to one one to ten million, right? But often people are kind of finding and finding it either, you know, themselves and like, you know, struggling to, to get there. And a lot of companies really kind of fail in that stage, right? Because they're making a lot of mistakes and we want to kind of, you know, show uh, CEOs, uh, particularly, you know, uh, during this event that they they shouldn't necessarily have to worry perhaps as much as, as as they do, because there is a, there is a proven path to do it and and we want to discuss, and that's why we've created this, this whole, uh, you know, specific uh, content and event uh, around that, um, So very excited for that. You can learn more about uh, Blueprint at saslob.com forward slash Blueprints. But uh, what we're going to talk about today uh, very neatly ties into that, Shelley. It's the top mistakes first time founders make when scaling and how to avoid them. Um, (laughs) And I, I think you've probably seen them all. Uh, and I know that like on the, on the notes that you've shared, like, you know, that we, we could probably make a podcast series on this, <laughs> but like, we, we're not. That's, we're gonna... that's,
1: that's definitely one to think about, isn't that? Yeah. We'll, yeah, put definitely, that, definitely. that we we'll put do, that definitely. on the to-do. We'll put that on the to-do. Yeah. yeah, definitely,
0: definitely. Uh, but, and so, uh, but we got, we got 30 minutes or, or, or less yeah. now, right. To, uh, to talk about it. So we're going to, we're going to pick, uh, some of the mistakes, and I mean, like, why not? Let's go with what, I don't know if there's like a number one mistake. That, I, you know, I, already- I
1: think I classify the number one mistake as this, and yeah. it's, uh, I take this word from uh, from the European, in America, math is singular, with, and in Europe, it's maths, which I've learned. Yeah. And uh, so I think one of the biggest mistakes is not understanding or not taking the time to do something I call the product market fit pause entrepreneurs that start companies are so fantastic at listening to customers. They have a a notion of a problem space. They listen to customers. They can, in their head, kind of calculate what platform or what they have developed to date or what they're doing. And they can kind of twist it very quickly and go back to their team and, and build it, right, or get it built. Because that's just They're they're fantastic at it. They're fantastic at multitasking and quick thinking and and doing that and trying to find product market fit. When you don't take a pause and kind of switch how you're working and not 100%, but a portion of it, you don't take that product market fit pause to kind of step back and determine What of all of those experiments that you did, which are paying customers, you don't step back and look at what is truly at that moment, the product market fit because it's product market fits. There's multiple product market fits. When you don't do that and you don't put your part of your organization into this mode of repeatedly selling the exact same thing to the same cohort while the rest of the organization is still doing um, the, the finding, you know, the next, Product market fit, that's when um, they start to fail because that skill that is so needed for entrepreneurs to kind of test and listen and test and sell slight derivations of something is contra to scaling. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to continually just overnight flip the switch and everyone work on one thing, but it is important that you stop and I call it the product market fit pause, really pause and look at what exactly in the core of what you've been selling is your product market fit and that's typically what is ret- what you are you have retention in right so it takes a little bit of time to understand that how long it takes to implement or get someone on board or if they're if, if you have strong retention. So most of the time they don't do that because they just keep selling what they thought they could sell or slight derivations. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. And it's hard for entrepreneurs to do that because what made them successful to even get to a million uh, isn't gonna be the same thing in that particular area that gets you to 10 million. How long do you pause for? you know you never pause 100% right like it, it like back in the day i worked for a, a eds had this commercial which is like a plane and flight eds isn't a company anymore but electronic data systems but they had this ad that was like building the plane and flight flight so you don't take a pause in terms of everything stops but you take enough of a pause to do the data analytics against what what truly is your product market fit, and you do it while you're still selling. And then you make adjustments in terms of what you're going to arm your large sales force with and the new people coming on with a very small kind of product set and enablement set. And then you continue to expand that over time. So it's as long as it takes for the data when you have enterprise solutions first, it takes a little bit less. You have less customers. When you have product-led growth and low ASP, high volume, it takes a little bit longer. Uh, so it really just depends, but it, it's not a full like 100% pause. You don't stop the company, but you definitely stop and take that uh, analysis and then continue that practice forever forward.
0: This one may not be as, uh, as big as the, uh, the, the what we just mentioned about taking the pause, but I, I thought quite uh, topical, certainly certainly to me. But not hiring an assistant and then you put yes. oh, Calendly isn't a replacement. Now, <laughs> yes. now, the, the reason I was smiling is that I, I and, and maybe I shouldn't smile, but, I've replaced my assistant with Calendly. For, for the so, he,
1: he, so you didn't like that. So look, yeah. I think you should have Calendly and an assistant. Yeah. Uh, because look, if what's great, you send me a Calendly. Here's Shelly, Here's my Calendly, and I send you a Calendly. Who's going to connect us? Right? Someone actually has to go and do that. But that's not that's not the the um, real reason. The real reason is look, as a CEO of these companies, you are the glue and you are the only one that's strategically kind of holding everything together and also looking at where all the gaps are, especially when you're growing, you don't have the full leadership team or your leaders don't have the skill and the passion and kind of what made you you. And so, when you think about it, you need to make sure that every moment of your time is used on things that only you can do. So even drafting emails, uh, kind of following up on things, getting ready for your team meetings, sending out kind of all hands updates, a newsletter to your team because everyone's distributed now and and uh, the communications, anything, any moment that they can give you back so that you can focus on the strategic direction or listening to customers or filling in the gap is going to grow your business. And when you think about the cost of a VA and those tasks that someone's going to help you with, they're probably the last things that you do. They're incredibly important, but they're not things that you need to spend time on. So maybe it's not Calendly, but it certainly is emails and email follow-ups. And for me, I know I always say, like, I want to make sure that everyone, um, I want to spend more time with my team. So I make sure that someone's looking at my calendar and telling me you're not spending enough time with your team or you're not working out, right? I tell them it's really important to me to work out and someone to remind you. So I think people think of it as a luxury or a waste, but in the end, what it's doing is enabling you to do more of only what you can do. And so I have to, every CEO I work with that gets their first kind of institutional money, the first thing I do is go, you know, you really need to get an assistant and they go, no, I don't know. And I go, I'll help you. And then I have the spec and I help them. And then I have someone help them on board. And then within two or three months, they're like, oh my gosh, how did I ever live without that person? So uh, it, just, it, it just matters. And it's not about a calendar, it's about your time being the most valuable for your company.
0: And I, I have to clarify, it wasn't that I didn't like uh, her, um, but, uh, but, but actually when, when we, we had to make some cuts this year because you know, event industry uh, suffering a little bit because of the pandemic, uh, and um, our, you know, a couple of our investors uh, said that uh, having a, a virtual assistant uh, was a luxury. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, that was uh, uh, that was the reason. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, maybe you, you know. So in, in a in a would you suggest that in a in a in a growth time or a period of growth when you are going from one to ten, then it is essential. But like perhaps that you you know before one million or something like that. Maybe I, to turn.
1: look first first of all, and I'm I'm going to say this like the investors and I you know I'm an investor as well. Yeah. The investors don't run your company. You yeah. do. Right. And so you have to look and see sometimes a a virtual assistant. And, you know, I found this great company called Virtual Hub and I'm not associated with them at all, but it's great because it's cost effective. It's well run. And it's just they have cost effective VAs that they've trained. They select and train. And I think it's a great service. But I think that, look, if you have a virtual assistant and it prev- and you then can have 10 more hours a week to work on sales and marketing, it may be the difference between you having to hire a head of sales and marketing and you're gonna do a better job at it anyway. So I think it's just looking at where you're spending your time and that investor doesn't know where you're spending your time, you do, right? And that investor doesn't know what your uni- unit costs are or where the pain points, the deep pain points are in your company. So I think it's, you have to step back and make sure that you're looking at that. So I can't tell you if you should, but what I do know is the CEOs of a scale-up company are the, it's really hard to get to a million, right? Many startups fail. And if you get to that stage, there's something that you can be doing that you can get lift on. And a VA is a perfect place to start. It may be the difference between you having to hire a marketing person and you create the copy and your VA like helps you distribute it on social media because that's a common skill set these days. That's not a specialized skill set. Every, every person who uh, you know, is from three years old on knows how to post things on social media. So I think it's about thinking about how you're spending your time and then how to use those dollars the most appropriately. And an investor's just not running your business. You are.
0: Good, good point. Good point. Uh, and, and noted as well. Um, and, <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'm passionate about this. Can you tell?
0: Um, I, I, know, um, no, I, feel, I felt like you were speaking to me. I mean, you are speaking I to me. I am speaking <laughs> to you, Alex. I'm I speaking I to you. I, I, um, <laughs> So we'll, let's we'll move on to uh, the next sort of common mistake and yeah. hiring. It's like a huge mistake uh, that first time founders. I mean, maybe second time, third time, but they're probably good at a little bit better, right? Uh, that's the hope. But uh, hiring uh, in that phase, the ones to ten million, uh, and and then we will also sort of like we'll, we'll bolt on the the kind of the C suite coaching as well, and the moving yeah. from like that manager to to a coach. So let, let's dive into that a little bit.
1: Like I think that. You talked earlier about the fact that there's a blueprint. And I I think that there's not a blueprint. I think there's blueprints that you have to apply as you scale that you can use during different phases of growth. And not every blueprint applies to you. But it's certainly, you can replicate it. And you can take pieces of blueprints the way that I kind of think about it is um, I'm not a huge sports person because I like to work a lot, but uh, I kind of think of it as, you know, you're kind of, you have a playbook and you go and watch other teams and you kind of see the defensive moves and the offensive moves and you take certain collections and you teach your team how to kind of play against um, the offense and the defense. And you, you have your own kind of secret plays and people study them. And I think that's, that's what the blueprints are is that you can Find other companies that are like yours. The The issue is, though, is that in essence, you have to look at where you are and the choices that you've made during startup or even you know those early stages of scale up. Because every quarter, every month, whatever it is, you're making trade-offs. Sometimes you make trade-offs to have more features versus performance because you want to get customers on board for features and, you, and it doesn't scale and you know that you've put forward that you need to scale later. Or maybe you um, have decided to build more of the back end and then sell it later or sell first and then build more of it. Whatever it is, none of those choices are wrong. They're just different. They're different from a CEO that might have made a choice before in a different order. So I think the important thing to do when you're looking at scaling your leadership team is to make sure that you've understood the choices that you've made as trade-offs and then decide what's the next thing that you want to do, and do you have the right team to do it? So sometimes you have to order uh, doing something first because you have a team that has the skill sets to do it, and then you need to go and hire the person that has that skill set and then schedule it a bit later. And so I think the really important thing is to kind of look at the skills of your company today, It's the C-suite, and the C-suite I refer to as the CEO and whoever's direct to the CEO. And the way I think about it is that C suite needs to have 100% coverage of what's happening today and what's going to happen next, right? Because in a in a scale up at 1 to 10, you're doubling like every month, every quarter if those speeds, if you're at a clipping uh, growth rate of, you know, 80, 50, 80, which you should be when you're um If you've hit product market fit, you should be at that growth rate, especially with institutional investment. You have to be looking out of the corner of your eye of what's coming next. And if you're so focused on like right now and you don't see what's coming out of the corner of your eye, that's what prevents you from scaling. So I always say, look at your C-suite as a whole, kind of as a person, and look at like where your coverage is, not just for today, but what's coming. And you should be hiring for your biggest gap and sometimes you know as a ceo you're filling in some of those gaps but your goal should be to get yourself out of those gaps right eventually and so you should be hiring for that and sometimes it's you know it's not is it a product person? Is it a CFO? Is it, sometimes it's a mix of skills that you have to find in an individual that sometimes they identify as a uh, CFO and sometimes they identify as a COO and sometimes they'll identify as a growth person. It's not necessarily about titles, it's understanding what you need and then finding that. And I think one of the things, the way you can do that is talk to other CEOs, talk to people who've had experience doing it before, and then narrow in on the gaps and then talk to a few people with the profile that fit those gaps. And they they will have different titles. They will have different skills. They will have come from different places scale-ups are unique and they take a unique individual to be at that C-suite to kind of be able to, you know, get their um, hands dirty, but also be able to strategically see. And hiring the C-suites, again, direct could be be C-levels, could be VPs, could be director, could be individual contributor, but you need to be looking at a covering a hundred percent of the business today and out of your out of the corner of your eye where it's going. And that that there is a blueprint to do that, to look at it, to understand it, but your gaps are going to be different than someone else's gaps. And just because someone has given you the title that you need to fill, I guarantee you if you kind of go underneath and look at their LinkedIn just like you did when you were introducing me titles at the C-level or VP mean very different things. So get underneath the person. And one of the things I say is like, so if an investor says to you, go hire a COO, great. What COO do you recommend? Can you give me a name? Just, I'm not going to hire them. Just give me a profile. Because one of the things you want to do is understand what they value about the person because they're not really saying go hire a COO. What they're really saying is go hire this person, Shelly, who happens to have a title of COO, they don't tell you go hire Shelly because they're probably at a different one of their investment companies. So you have to understand what they're really saying, the profile of the person they're saying, not the title. And I think that's the biggest issue in C-suites is you hire for titles as you're scaling and not necessarily the gaps in skills or the right profile of person. And the title sometimes doesn't matter.
0: And when you've you've got that C suite that you you've hired the C suite, um, you know we talk about the the or the ability to transition from a manager to a kind of coach, right? And yeah. coaching is a real skill set, right? Something that that people like it, it takes time. It takes sometimes experience, but something that takes a lot of time to develop. And you know, I mean, for me, again, I'm not I'm not running a, a SaaS company, but but run, run, running a business, and you know, it's taken me maybe four or five years to try and get into that sort of like coaching mindset, yeah. you know, running a business. So, uh, and maybe these first time founders, like if they go one to 10, they don't have four or five years to to, to do that, right? But, but essentially, so what are the mistakes that people make around coaching and uh, uh, with a C-suite?
1: I think the, the mistake they make is something that I kind of call the scale up tax. And that is that look, operators operate and when you're scaling up and you've, you know, you've gotten institutional money, or even if you're, you're bootstrapping it, you, you need to grow fast. And the fact of the matter is, is that you as a CEO, or even your C-suite, your skill set and experience or passion, whatever it is, is a big gap from the people that you have working for you, because the economics, it has to be that way. The economics are that way. And you want to have people who are very um, energetic and and they have a lot of potential and you can kind of mold them and give them opportunities. So what that means is you've got a big gap. And so what happens sometimes is you, you estimate what the team can do based on you doing it. And in the end, they're never gonna be able to do it as fast as you. So then you also don't allocate the time to coach them. And again, along the same lines of the VA and kind of where you're spending your time, Most good entrepreneurial CEOs aren't good coaches because they don't have time to be. It takes time to be a good coach. And is it the right thing to do to take your time to coach them? And I I don't know if it is or not. You have to answer that question. So you should constantly be looking at, is it the right thing for me to do to, to spend time with this person to coach them? Or do I have someone in my network who can coach them? Or do they have a big enough network who can coach them? So I think it's, it's understanding, you know, are you the right person to do it? Because maybe you have the ability, but you don't have time because you've got something, you're closing a deal or you're working on a financing round and you just don't have time to do it. So I think it's identifying how your C-suite can get coached and identifying what the gaps are that they need to be coached on. And even if you help identify that or they help identify it for themselves, which is really what they need to be doing, then you need to use every way possible to get that coaching and not assume that the CEO is going to do it because the CEO is basically taking filling in some of the gaps in that C-suite. So when you are selecting a C-suite or a direct to a CEO in a scale-up, one of the things I always say is make sure you ask them what their network is. How do they network? How do they find out things they don't know how to do? And if they don't have a big network, it's probably not the right person to hire.
0: Sort of segues into my next thing. So I, I know we, we're we going to talk uh, or certainly uh, throughout the agenda of, of the Blueprint event on the 15th. Uh, about a lot of the uh, mistakes which you can uh, and how to avoid them. Uh, but it's not just about mistakes uh, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, you mentioned about network here and uh, building a network of CEOs that recently went through your yes. phase uh, is a, another kind of common mistake. So uh, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, I think that people, first of all, you should always uh, build a personal network as a CEO. It is an extremely lonely job. And uh, one of my uh, former colleagues or someone who I uh, have in my circle is Claire Herkmans, and she's the founder of the Chief of Staff Club, and she founded that when she was actually my Chief of Staff, and one of the profound moments she said is, uh, are you a founder CEO or a CEO founder? And, and I think the difference, if you've worked with a lot of founders who kind of scale their companies, is that as a founder, you know, you're kind of in the thick, you're you're sitting next to everyone, you're in the thick of things, and you're kind of one of the team members. And as you scale, you need to become the CEO, which means you need to kind of rise above it. And in fact, you can be friends with those people, but you, you have a different role and you need to kind of metamorphosed to becoming the CEO. And it is a very lonely job. And especially for founders, because part of what got them excited was working in the thick of things with their team. And so the way that you can kind of get that fix is to start to build your own kind of personal CEO network. And I think if you find ones that are one going through the same things you are, there's a little bit of camaraderie there, and that's one group. And then what you want to do is find of group of CEOs that went through what you did a few years ago. Not 10 years ago, but two years ago. Because if you talk to B2B CEOs from five years ago, many of them aren't gonna understand kind of how product-led growth works in uh, B2B. And I'm not saying they're not valuable because they are valuable. They're just not valuable in kind of some of the things that you will be experiencing between one to 10 million. So find CEOs that have recently gone through the stage that you've gone through because they're going to help you in a different way than your peer network is. And then find CFOs and find other kind of C-levels that can especially offset your skill set. You don't necessarily have to hire heavyweight C-suites. You can also build a personal network that can help you in a way that those C-suites would.
0: I mean, just on, on building network CEOs, like totally, um, you, you know, totally buy into that. Something that, again, like me personally, uh, I've taken too long to do, but now, <laughs> I, now was, I
1: feel like this is you, a therapy session, Alex. It's
0: all it's all hitting home. It's all hitting home. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean but like obviously, obviously we're, you know, again, we're not a SaaS company, but we're going through that one to ten phase, yeah. and you know, having those those challenges, right, and making the, the the mistakes that. Other CEOs or I'm making the mistakes that other CEOs are making, but uh, trying to get better at that. Um, uh, but yeah, we like we part of the blueprint uh, is uh, like uh, delegates that that sort of choose the annual program. We're putting them into a network of CEOs. Yes. For every year, um, and so so there's a lot of value uh, in, in that. So and, that and was what trying to help. Alex.
1: That was that was actually part of the reason why I. Um, wanted to participate when when you reached out was because you are providing that service. Yeah. And I think, I know that kind of the mega funds, they're called now, the mega funds provide that and make the introductions and even yeah. have kind of CEO roundtables because they understand the importance. And for some of the smaller uh, VCs, you know, they just don't have that operational ability to make those connections. They do with their own network, but I think the service that you're providing or the offering is fantastic. So it was part of the reason that I wanted to participate. So there's an opposite problem to that networking. And that is like the analysis paralysis and getting so much input that you never move. So there is a contra to, you know, getting that, um, getting that network. So I think that, uh, make sure that, you know, Maybe your VA or maybe, you know, one close kind of person in your network kind of says, all right, enough, put a timeline on when you're going to make the decision. So I was just thinking about that when you were talking. So you want to create that network and you want to get input, but you also you have to move fast with decisions.
0: So why is a data driven strategy versus like gut, (laughs) you know, accident gut versus the data, uh, a common mistake, uh, um, you know, for first time founders?
1: The best way that I can describe, like, why you should have a data-driven strategy is the concept of glory days, right? You've seen kind of movies of people in high school, or they're talking about their, you know, football. I guess in America, but their football and their glory days of, of you know, their heydays, and that's where I think that you need. To employ a data-driven strategy pretty quickly because this thing happens when you start when your SaaS company starts to get popular and people see that you're taking off you get a lot of copycats right because like that's it you you might be the first one to market but people are oh that's taking off and so I'm going to copy it and one of the things that founders do is they think that they were so close to the customers when they first started, they had to be. And then they you know, start to elevate and can't be as close to the customers, though certainly they're close to some, but they can't be as close because now they have an entire business to run. And they think that the customers they have when they in the beginning are the customers they have now. And the data helps to kind of create this universal truth. And when you're not looking at the data, if you're not looking at maybe the first customer did something and the founder's thinking that's what they did, but now they've evolved. So their company evolved just like yours evolved and the market evolved. And if you start looking at the patterns of how they're using the system now, then it it um, is just a way to kind of um, align everyone. It's a universal truth. The data doesn't lie. Now, we know we can use data in different ways to kind of support our different theses, but if you don't install a data driven operational base when you kind of hit that one, two, three million in SAS, you can't scale because you are trying to sell so much and you need to make sure that that data is alerting you to changes. And there's no human that can watch that data fast enough. And it's that data and the speed with which you're looking at it, that's going to help you understand what's happening and alert you on exceptions of things that are changing. And I think that's the biggest mistake is that founders kind of start to rely on gut. And just like they don't want to necessarily use AVA, they think that putting data structures in place is just operational process. But in the end, it's your biggest weapon to understand at scale what your customers are doing and how they change. And in the early stages of SaaS, look, SaaS is successful because it's an ecosystem. One of the biggest mistakes that People who come from B two B to SaaS as they kind of think about these massive kind of on prem solutions that have these high, you know, tied, um, uh, you know, sneaker net or heavy integrations. SaaS by design today being it's cloud native and it's so easy to do integrations. When it's easy to do integrations, it's easy to use features and functions from other people's SaaS. So the way that a company starts to use your SaaS in the beginning is going to be different as they evolve, especially in B2B. And I think that people think that um, that doesn't change. Well, they get it and they're growing but they can have a contract with you and stop using the software and you think they're going to renew, but in fact, you would have known three months ago they're not going to renew. They stopped using it. And if you're not looking at data, you're only looking at sales. And again, especially in B2B, if it's a 12-year contract, I'm sorry, 12-month contract, 12-year contract, Mm -hmm. a 12-month contract, and you're not looking at usage data, not just login, but usage patterns, you won't know that they're about to churn. So it's just really important to employ a data-driven strategy. And it's so easy now to do that. You know, back in the day, I used to have to create these manual things and get all kind of capital allocations to do kind of data warehouses. You don't have to do that anymore. There's so many solutions out there that'll collect the data and then integrate it and help you understand what's going on in your business. And that is a way to save on labor costs as well. So that's why data-driven strategies are extremely important. They help you scale. They help you and keep a pace on your business that you were able to do when you were smaller because you knew everything that was going on. But very, very quickly it gets um, out of
0: your uh, ability
1: and control and time to do it.
0: Bringing an example from, uh, uh, from, from my, my world it actually happened today um, where uh, I had a call uh, with with a, uh, with a with a with a software company that uh, we we use their platform, uh, but actually this year we haven't really used it much, right? And the renewal came up, and I've been presented with a two year contract, which was you know I'm talking about like enterprise sort of grade pricing. I, like, I haven't already used you guys this year and you sent me this contract and like, you know, I'm not really quite ready to sign it. Yeah. Well,
1: so what I would do, Alex, is I'd be reaching out to the CEO and tell me he needs to join the CEO blueprint series. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that is a common mistake. Right. Yeah. Like it's so easy in SaaS to know who's using your software. I mean, it's SaaS, it's there. Uh, And so it's not just a, a, a different way to do hosting. It is a different business model. And someone should have been reaching out to you, you know, six months ago saying, how can we help you? I see that you're not using this.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Therapy session over. Shelley. Oh
1: gosh, I'm having so much fun, though, Alex. Yeah. Well, actually, uh,
0: so so obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning, and um, you, I think throughout, you, you're speaking at, uh, at Blueprint on the 15th of December. Yes. You're on a uh, or you're leading a panel on scaling leadership. Yes. With two great CEOs, David Darmanin, who's the CEO of Potjar, with bootstrapped to I think they're 30 million ARR plus yes. uh, right now, they always hit a milestone during a SaaS event, which I often, uh, sort of laugh at uh, with, with David. Uh, he's a great guy, building this remote-first uh, sort of business before remote was cool. Uh, yeah. The island in Malta, 30 million ARR in six years. You know, no investment, fantastic. Uh, and then we've got Phil Chambers, uh, who's CEO of Picon, uh, 30 million ARR as well, uh, sort of roughly, uh, but have taken uh, you know venture capital. So I think it's going to be a nice conversation about scaling yes. leadership uh, yes. there. Uh, so, uh, excited, excited for that. And, and you'll be going deep on that and not talking too much about, uh, mistakes, which we've, uh, which we've covered. No,
1: no, but definitely the leadership choices are absolutely critical. So I think it's going to be a great session and, uh, learn from others who have gone before you. So I'm looking forward to
0: it. Excellent. Awesome. Well, uh, Shelley Perry, thank you so much uh, for being a fantastic guest. I really enjoyed talking to you uh, today uh, on this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. Uh, obviously, people will be able to see you uh, at Blueprint uh, um, uh, for CEOs on the 15th. But if they happen to be not attending for whatever reason, um, maybe they're not a CEO or whatever, where can they find you? Uh, online? Uh, you know,
1: you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. A- Twitter. You can also find Shelly M. Perry on Twitter. You can also find me hanging out at these on the Scale Up Edge community, which is scaleupedge.com. Awesome.
0: Great stuff. Well, thank right, you so much, uh, Shelley
1: Perry. All yeah. right. Bye.
0: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming sasdoc conferences around the world.